0: we'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We respectfully acknowledge the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation.
1: Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of Undercover for this season. My name is Chloe Henry, and I'm the producer of this episode.
0: And my name is Tom Monahan. I'll be presenting alongside Chloe.
1: In today's episode, we'll be exploring screen addiction in Australian youth, shark liver harvesting in the cosmetics industry, and books versus street smarts. We'll also be featuring stories on the exciting new world of Web3 and Australia's effectiveness at predicting natural disasters. So please sit back, relax, and stick around. few years, Australia has seen some of its worst natural disasters in history. Due to climate change, these events are likely to become more and more common and catastrophic. But is Australia doing enough to forecast and prepare? Tom Monaghan has more.
0: On the night of February 28th, Residents of Lismore went to bed under the sound of heavy rain hitting their roofs. They had been warned by the Bureau of Meteorology that this heavy rain would lead to flooding and that floodwaters would reach up to 10.6 metres, almost two metres lower than the town's record in 1974 and almost one metre less than the levels reached in 2017. However, throughout the night, more and more rain hit the area and the river continued to rise which forced the Bureau of Meteorology to update their alerts, alerting residents that the flood levee was going to be topped. At 3am Monday morning, their predictions came true. The speed at which the floodwaters rose caught many members of the community off guard, with some waking up to water in their house and subsequently being forced to escape through their roofs because of how quickly it was submerging their homes. Lismore has experienced severe flooding before, However, this year's floods broke the previous record by almost two metres, with water reaching 14.4 metres. It caught many members of the community off guard and the Bureau of Meteorology as well. So how can a town like Lismore prepare better for future flooding and how do climate scientists gather data to make their predictions? Dr Andrew King, Senior Lecturer in Climate Science at the University of Melbourne and a renowned climate projectionist, says data provided by the Bureau of Meteorology and other agencies is used to help with their projections.
2: So I use a mix of uh, different types of data sets, observational and uh, model data sets. I use observations, including like, station observations that are gathered by the Bureau of Meteorology and um, other meteorological agencies around the world. Uh, I use model data as well, um, so, This can be um, advanced Earth system models that try and simulate uh, the climate and and, um, all the interactions going on between different parts of the Earth system, um, like the atmosphere, the ocean, uh, vegetation as well. And these models are developed by different groups around the world, um, including in Australia by um, CSIRO, the Bureau, and the universities. So, um, yeah, using I, I use kind of lots of different types of datasets, um, some of which uh, are developed by the Bureau of Meteorology.
0: Along with being used by climate scientists, data provided by the Bureau is also critical to the operation and work done by multiple emergency response agencies, such as the SES. However, since 2013, the Bureau has seen extensive changes cutting costs by either closing down regional weather stations, centralising their operations or by cutting labour. Last year the Bureau had 122 fewer employees than it did a decade ago and their team of forecasters has been shrinking over the last few years according to an employee at the Bureau I spoke to. The employee, who wished to remain anonymous due to a few repercussions from the Bureau, said that since the coalition came to power in 2013 they have been centralised, meaning forecasters and meteorologists were forced to observe more areas of Australia with fewer people to do so. This recording was voiced by an actor to help keep the source anonymous.
1: On the night of the flooding in Lismore, I was working the night shift. The weather watch team, which is responsible for watching all the weather across Australia, was made benefit of only five people, with two of those workers being hydrologists whose job is to watch the levels of rain and to project how much was expected. The Lismore floods were not the only major weather event occurring at night. Brisbane had been receiving flooding too, and so we had three people who were watching all of Australia, including Lismore and Brisbane, and who were required to contact emergency services, such as the SES to ensure they were able to respond properly.
0: These comments are supported by an article published in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2015, which highlighted how the Bureau's resources were being stretched beyond capacity and were becoming less able to cope with multiple dangerous weather situations at one time. The article also reported that regional weather stations around Australia were being manned by one worker and sometimes left unattended, relying on the aging forecasting equipment to do the job. These claims were backed up by the Bureau Insider I spoke with earlier this month. After seeing the devastation left by the Lismore floods this year due to its speed and unexpectedness, the question must be asked, how can the Bureau help us prepare for the next disaster whenever it comes?
2: The Bureau's observations, particularly during extreme weather events like the the flooding we had in New South Wales and Queensland earlier this year, uh, and also during extreme heat events and and droughts and, and severe fire conditions, we really need to know what's going on on the ground. We need those um, measurements of temperature, rainfall, and other variables as well. And um, yeah, we, we really need that resource to be able to actually understand how climate change and climate variability are affecting extreme weather events and what we should be preparing for in the future. Although a
0: well-funded and resourced Bureau of Meteorology would improve Australia's ability to prepare for extreme natural disasters, it is not our golden ticket to a safer and more reliable climate. Professor Mark Howden, Director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University, says that Australia needs a national body that deals with our response to climate change to help us better prepare for the years ahead.
3: At the moment,
4: we actually don't have a national body uh, that actually Deals with the adaptation responses. So, when it comes down to it, all of the information on climate and climate impacts is all very well, but what people really want to know about is what do I do about it? How do I adapt to these changes? And at the moment, we haven't got a body that deals with that. And, and I've been arguing for some time we do need one, um, which is more than a research body. So, in the past, we have had some research entities. Uh, that do some of that, but we actually need something which is much more linked into decision making
0: these days. Mr Howden believes that without this body and due to Australia's decade-long inaction on climate change, Australia is not well equipped to deal with the challenges faced by climate change and we will not be sufficiently prepared when the next disaster hits
4: we're certainly less well equipped than we otherwise would be. And that's what the recent IPCC report said, is that there's a growing gap between uh, the challenge of climate change in, in all its various forms and how Australia is responding.
0: Whilst the Bureau of Meteorology needs to be well resourced and funded to ensure climate projectionists and emergency services are able to help us better prepare for the next extreme weather event, Australia also needs a government body which prepares, acts and joins discussions on climate change to ensure sufficient work is being done to help us be better prepared the next time we experience another disaster like the Lismore floods. Within Australia, education and occupation seems to be a symbol of one's status in society. Where you went to school, where you went to university, that's if you went to university. And with the way our education systems are set up, it is clear that academic smarts are more valued and appreciated within our education systems compared to practical skills and street smarts. Olivia Thompson spoke to people about their school experience and how they feel about book smarts versus street smarts.
5: Australians continually face a label to describe their type of intelligence. People are either called book smart or street smart. But is one better to be than the other? During my school years, from prep to year 12, I always felt comfortable within the traditional school system beginning school at around 8.30 in the morning, completing six periods of schoolwork and then finishing the day at around 3.15. It was a structure which always worked for me and I always appreciated the routine of it all. However, that's not everyone's experience, like my brother Mitchell. Mitchell is 16 years old and has always been a practical kid. As a young boy, he was always building something or creating something with his hands, anything from Lego to woodwork. He never fails to surprise me with what he's capable of, his imagination far more vivid than my own. Through these strengths, like many of us, he's also come across weaknesses. Unfortunately, these weaknesses were considered more valuable within the traditional Australian school system which so many of us have experienced.
6: They didn't really care about sports or, you know, the tech or whatever. Um, And then, you know, when I started high school at BMG, I thought it was a little overwhelming. Like, year seven, I felt like I'm doing, like, year 10 work. Mm. Like, you know, I don't know what it was like for you, but I feel like they might have changed it since when you were in year seven. And, like they just gave me task after task every week and it just felt so overwhelming that I just I couldn't bear to stay.
5: Mitchell is gifted with mathematical skills and understanding whereas the English related skills and comprehension were gifted to me. At least that's what our parents will tell you. That being said, at Mitchell's trade school, his English and math studies are always related to the industry. So you won't find Mitchell reciting Shakespeare anytime soon.
6: So now everything that we do in our English and maths is always related to any type of trade. So maths, measuring, um, Pythagoras, um, anything that will require some, that you will probably encounter in the trade industry, you will do that in maths. Everything that you do in English is all kind of based around your work experience. and, you know, getting the skills to, like, speak properly.
5: Aya Taniguchi is currently undertaking a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in Nutrition at Swinburne University. She is in her final year of this degree, but has plans to further her studies. Like many of us, she remembers waking up to see what her ATAR was and whether she was able to get into her top choice of the course and university.
7: Leading up
4: to coming up with ATAR results, I was, like, a little bit anxious, I suppose everybody is. But, like, overall, I thought I was, like, prepared for whatever I got because I felt I did well in my exam and stuff. So I wasn't too stressed out. Um, on the day that, like, ATARs released, like, usually I sleep in, but, like, I got up at the time <laughs> that ATARs were released to see my score. And uh, when I saw my score, I was a bit shocked. Like, I thought I would do well, but I was surprised with, like, how well I did. <laughs> And I remember my mum came into my room, she was like, Aya, have you checked your results? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, how did you go? I was like, yeah, I did really well. And she's like, oh, okay, okay, good. And yeah, I wasn't really too worried because I knew the eight hour requirement for my course I wanted to get into was something I could definitely achieve. So anything more than that was just a bonus.
5: Natalie Bradfield had a different experience to Aya. Natalie is currently undertaking a bachelor in science majoring in psychology at RMIT University. She is also in her final year of her degree but has plans to further her studies. Natalie's experience of looking up her year 12 results made me remember the relief of year 12 being over and regardless of the ATAR knowing this time in our educational journey was over was enough.
7: I was going into receiving my ATAR being like I just didn't really know what to expect it was kind of like every other test we did in high school I just didn't know what to expect like I didn't actually expect anything amazing but at the end of the day I was sort of like happy that year 12 was just done and it's almost like I didn't actually really care that much about what I got because year 12 was done and it's not like I have to repeat year 12 or anything so it was sort of like it's done and the course that I'd chosen had a relatively low ATAR anyway so it was sort of like well do I really need to try do I really care and then after after I got it I was pretty impressed like not like not impressed I was actually like a little disappointed but like just because it was like I could have gotten like one point more and I would have been like at a nice number, you know what I mean? Rather than some sort of complicated number.
5: My ATAR story is a mix of Aya and Natalie stories. I woke up before 7am ready to jump into the ATAR app to see what my results were. My mum would normally head out for work at quarter past seven so she was able to be with me before I got my result. And right at 7am here, the app was open and my ATAR result was right there. I was really happy with my result as it not only was higher than the requirement for the course I wanted to get myself into, but it was higher than the goal I set for myself. My mum was thrilled and my brother was just upset that our excitement woke him up. I also felt the same relief Natalie did in the sense that year 12 was over and we could just move on to bigger and better things. However, I was also a book smart student who felt comfortable within the traditional school system and I did perform well throughout my high school years. People like my brother who are more street smart and practical don't necessarily feel the same way that I did. ABC recently published a story which noted that students felt that science-based subjects will deliver a higher ATAR compared to art-based subjects, and that art-based subjects have decreased in enrolments within the past 10 years. This is concerning as students should be picking subjects they love and are good at, not at what they think society will prefer. Having access to education and school should be a human right and we Australians are very privileged to have access to so many opportunities and different avenues of learning. So why is there still this sense of book smarts being more valuable than street smarts? Both are very good to have in different contexts. Whether you complete a bachelor's degree with further plans of study like Aya or Natalie or you plan to undertake an apprenticeship like my brother Mitchell, Education and skills should be equally valued, not only within the job sectors, but within society. This has been Olivia Thompson for Undercover. Blockchain,
1: cryptocurrency, DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, Ethereum, Fiat, welcome to Web3. A world filled with digital art, long acronyms, and almost utopian communities. Rebecca Broadhead will take us through the basics of Web3 and explore the potential universe that awaits us. In
8: 1991, the world received Web1 as if it were a UFO landing on our doorsteps. You could only really read web pages made by companies who owned content. Fast forward to 2004, when Web2 was born along with Facebook users began interacting in communities and sharing content. Web3 is now on the horizon, a user-controlled internet devoid of value-extracting intermediaries. This latest iteration of the web has come out of a long history of internet-oriented cultures, including the cypherpunks, who were into cryptography, and the libertarian movement, which values free market practices. But when you look at cultures of Web3 today, there are many overlapping subcultures, which I'll hand over to Tully Kearney from RMIT's blockchain hub to explain.
9: People move into the space with the uh, invention of Bitcoin and um, blockchain and then Ethereum as well. And um, from there, they started to um, breed like, Cohort of like maximalists, um, where they just think that, uh, for example, Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that matters and it's uh, digital gold and it's the future of the world and it's going to be the reserve currency and, and all of that. And some of them, like, are going to be cypherpunks as well, um, that just really um, value the security um, uh, that these technologies bring. Um, and then from there, you also have. Um, newer people that come into the space, uh, more of the retail uh, that are just interested in um, getting rich quick or found out about it and uh, like resonate with the values of the, um, the space.
8: Those are just a few examples of groups within Web3 with different social, political and economic tenants, but how they use the technology is also another dividing line. Have you ever heard of a blockchain? the ledgers on which cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin were created. I spoke with technology sociologist Alexia Maddox about blockchains and community structures, ways of coordinating and social engineering in Web3. So you start with the um, the blockchain itself and there are several different types
4: of blockchains, not just one. And so uh, Ethereum, which is one of the major players in uh, Web3 space, has uh, the Ethereum blockchain. Now, that particular blockchain has on it the capacity for smart contracts. So this is just uh, code that automates and executes decisions, right? So that's what a smart contract is. It's neither smart nor a contract, but that is a language that that has been used for it, right? It's persistent code. Hmm. And so... uh, Once you have a technology that like that, that allows for information to be put in for a decision to be made and then automatically executed, you can associate that with um, the token, which is the value
8: generation. To understand tokens more, I asked Tully about their function and he explained it to me using the example of Board Ape Yacht Club, an NFT collection built on the Ethereum blockchain and their tokens, Ape Coins.
9: Taking Board Ape Yacht Club for example, um, they have yeah their NFTs which represent um, a social um, purpose and yeah as I said really represent the social clout within the space because they're quite prestigious and also that's tied to their economic value. Their token, uh, their social token, is an NFT, a non fungible token. But then they also have um, a cryptocurrency, which is a fung- fungible token, and uh, it's called an 8 coin. And this represents um, political or, or governance um, and utility, um, such as economic purposes within their ecosystem. So um, it'll be used to um, vote on particular um, proposals within the project, um, but also serve as a utility coin that you can use to purchase virtual assets such as land within their virtual world, but also gain access to exclusive features within their community, such as games and merchandise, uh, among uh, other things.
8: If you're still with me, now we're going to move on to something that will really open your mind. You may have heard of DAOs, Decentralised Autonomous Organisations. DAOs don't have a core governance structure, but they do have a governance process. Alexia shared with me a pretty remarkable way in which this technology can be used.
4: One of my favourite first stories around how a DAO could be used um, is is from some researchers who basically, I can't remember what they called this, but they they wanted to um, create a way for whales to save themselves. So, for example, um, they created a DAO and that DAO has a treasury, and it has a data input called an oracle. So if, for example, uh, and the data that's gathered is the conditions of the ocean that the whales move through, right? And so if those conditions change to be less conducive for the whales, the DAO takes and analyses that information and then executes a command to deliver value to fund an intervention effort. Mm. So in that, it's not people making the decision, but uh, the environment itself. So you can start to introduce non-human decision-making processes that have nothing to do with us. So as people, we're very centred around how technology serves us. But in our future, we're going to actually be living in a world in which uh, it is not us at the centre of the um, equation.
8: Now, that may seem out of this world to you, but just for a moment consider the enormous possibilities of these kinds of projects. In Web 1 and Web 2, we saw technologies were mainly being used to create what we see in the physical world, such as print going online. But what we are seeing in Web 3 is people creating new financial derivatives, artists earning on the blockchain through the use of NFTs, and gamers playing with different economic and political mechanisms. But there's still so much more we haven't seen, as Tully explains.
9: I don't think anyone really would have predicted that like um, say, uh, TikTok would be one of the uh, biggest um, platforms in the world, you know what I mean? Like And so um, maybe there's opportunities within Web3 that we're yet to actually see. Um, and so like trying to gauge that is a bit difficult when when you just don't know. like and I think that that will probably become a lot clearer as adoption comes in and people from various different industries actually move into the ecosystem. And I think that'll, um, there'll be like a lot of um, these new innovative ideas that maybe come from um, user experience and user interface designers, as well as marketers, um, because I think that's what we're lacking in the space at the moment. And also economists and and various other areas as well, once we can start to get um, people who aren't just tech-based. And we're already seeing that, but I think there's definitely room to grow, which is really cool.
0: There are mixed debates around whether technology is negatively impacting young kids or providing them resources and helping to educate them. Raym Alassari has all the details as to how much technology is healthy for children and what parents can do at home to avoid their children becoming screen-dependent.
3: The Australian Research Council's Centre of Excellence for the Digital Child is conducting research into ways Australian parents can help incorporate technology into their children's lives without risking the development of screen dependence. So how much technology exposure is unhealthy for our kids? Professor Sue Bennett, a researcher from the University of Wollongong, spoke to
10: me about the ways in
3: which we can help make digital technology work for young children.
10: We need to recognise that children are just in the process of developing self-regulation and it's self-regulation that we use to monitor ourselves and put limits on the amount of time that we're using technology or the ways that we're using technology. It's hard enough for many of us as adults to switch off from an absorbing game or a show where we just want to watch the next episode um, or to resist that urge to check our social media again. So it's even harder for children who are just developing their capacity to regulate their own behaviour.
3: Bennett believes there are a variety of ways to help kids adapt to this new life of technology and interact with tech in a positive way.
10: Engaging children in a range of activities has always been important and that continues to be so even in a more digital world. We tend to think of activities as either digital or not, but often we're actually combining digital and non-digital in physical and creative activities. So combining both moves us away from thinking about only options for limiting children's technology use. And it gets us to ask ourselves questions about what technology is helping them do, And how technology is becoming part of their play their learning and their connections with the world in positive ways
3: there are solutions for the issue of children being addicted to technology however when it comes to kids addiction to technology not everyone agrees with the characterization although the overuse of technology can be problematic
10: so to understand how we might address problematic technology use or overuse we should start by seeking to understand when and how it happens and what we might want to be different. There are likely to be a whole range of reasons why different people uh, use or overuse technology. For some it might be an escape to pursue an interest or it might simply be a habit. It might also be about connecting and feeling part of a community or needing to keep up to date with what's going on. There are lots of positives to using technology. There are the pleasures of entertainment and interaction, Um, but as we know there's a darker side too of social comparisons and feelings of being left out rather than feeling included. So all of these at various times could be drivers of technology use and we know that technologies are also specifically designed to hold our attention or entice us to re-engage. So it's problematic when this takes us away from other activities that need our attention and when it detracts from our well-being. Uh, This is when technology use or overuse can be really problematic.
3: There is lots of new research coming in about screen dependence in children, something which could prove useful for parents in helping limit the use of technology in their household.
10: There's a whole host of research all the time that is coming out looking at problematic technology use from a range of different angles and for different age groups. So some researchers are looking at the health effects, health effects when we're not being as physically active as we perhaps should be or when we're getting less sleep when we should. Um, There are also the distractions of trying to switch our attention between various technologies while we're trying to focus on something like checking social media when we're trying to learn something uh, and the negative consequences of antisocial behaviour online.
11: A
3: report by the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne found that the vast majority, 94% of Australian teenagers, were reported to have one or more of their own personal mobile screen based devices, such as a smartphone or a tablet, followed by two thirds, 67% of primary school aged children, a third. of preschoolers and 17% of infants and toddlers. Just like many other organisations that help provide support for young kids with their use of technology, the ARC of Excellence for the Digital Child's mission is to ensure young Australians are exposed to an appropriate amount of technology so they can remain connected in a digitally evolving world.
10: Our vision is for Australian children to be healthy, educated and connected in a digital world. There's a lot more detail on our website that outlines a big research agenda with a mission to support young people growing up in a digital world. We were established right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. In some ways, that's made it more difficult to get started because a lot of the research that we would have done involves people and we've been delayed by the restrictions. But at the same time, it's made us all more aware of just how important technology is in our lives.
3: Jade Taylor, a busy mum of two young kids, believes there are many positive ways to children using technology and that it's important to keep them connected.
11: When the pandemic started, I had a prep who spent most of his first year of school learning from home. Technology in our home impacted our five-year-old's way of life. School was online. For a long time, interaction with his friends was online. His dance class was online. But this was just a passing moment. I felt that I was blessed to spend extra time with our child that I would not have had due to the pandemic. Technology is our life and our future. And I believe that it is just about balance.
3: Miss Taylor believes parents need to monitor their kids' online presence to avoid an unhealthy relationship with technology.
11: Technology, in my opinion, is only negative if there aren't boundaries, rules and guidance. Technology isn't bad, it's how we use it and what we do with it, like anything in life. If I'd left my kid online by himself, then yeah, it would be a bad situation. So I think it's really up to the parents.
3: As a mother currently monitoring your kids' tech use, what do you think we can do to help children harness technology and use it responsibly?
11: I think the real question is what can parents and teachers do to harness technology in a beneficial way? And we need to deter our children from negative impacts. It's on us, the parents, not technology. Parental guidance, I believe, and balance is the key to a harmonious lifestyle. 3.7
1: 2.7 million sharks are captured and killed for their livers every year. The growing demand for squalene oil within the cosmetic industry is putting deep-water sharks at risk of extinction. Alex Mokocchi talks to a marine biologist to provide further details.
12: You'll find it in your sunscreens, anti-aging creams, conditioners, deodorants, eyeshadows, lip balms, lipstick and face cleansers. Squalene oil is a substance that provides moisture to human skin, keeping it hydrated and smooth, but at the cost of 2.7 million sharks every year, which have been slaughtered for their squalene-rich livers since the 16th century. As we age, our skin produces less squalene, Starting in our 30s, it decreases to less than half by 60 years of age. Therefore, many unethical businesses in the cosmetic industry are driven to commercially source squalene from shark liver oil. I spoke to marine biologist Lawrence Klebeck to dive deep into the ugly truth. Lawrence is an activist for an ecological sustainable world for our animals and a campaigner for the Humane Society International Australia. His work at HSI is currently focused on shark welfare and protection, specifically in regards to shark culling and control programs, exploitation and international protection. For years, sharks have been villainized. However, I investigate their territory to understand them further.
13: The type of sharks used for squaling to extract their liver is a specific group of deep water living sharks. They're probably about a meter and a half at the largest. Most are pretty small. Many are what we call dogfish, which are small shark species that live deep down in the depths. These are species that we don't really know too much about.
12: However, we do know that they're not the species that we hear about biting humans and you definitely can't spot them on your snorkeling trip. Dogfish species are the sharks that have a high squalene oil content in their livers. They eat squid, and other deep living fish. Removing them from the ocean is detrimental to Australia's ecosystems.
13: How that affects the ecology of Australia and the oceans, it's difficult to say. So those sharks that have the highest squalene content in their livers are mostly deep water sharks, but they're no less important to those uh, ecosystems in which they live.
12: With a lack of government support and most of Australia's threatened species not monitored by the government, Lawrence headed the campaign to take the Queensland government to court to end the deliberate culling of sharks in the Great Barrier Reef, and he won. 2019 followed a continuous legal battle over shark culling, but Lawrence believed it was a detriment to the ecological availability and preservation of the reef. Sharks are the doctors of the reef and the ocean that keep everything in balance. Healthy oceans need these sharks. They are considered a keystone species, meaning that without them, the ecosystems around them could become unstable and face possible collapse.
13: Sharks are one of the most threatened groups of animals on the entire planet, not just in the ocean. Anywhere from 65 to 263 million sharks are fished every year. This is a huge burden on our oceans. Not only should we want sharks around because aesthetically they're amazing and magnificent animals in their own right and they deserve to be here, but there are The ocean's doctors, they feed on the weak and diseased and they keep ecosystems healthy and functioning properly in the way that they can. When you take too many animals outside of an ecosystem, the food chain and the relationship between the other organisms in that community is going to collapse. As far as the deep ocean goes, removing sharks from that system will have definite negative impacts.
12: It has a bigger impact on us than we think.
13: It could affect the fish that we humans eat.
12: The Humane Society International is fully committed to the conservation of sharks in Australia and making consumers aware of the unethical processes of the ingredients they are
13: purchasing. For another industry to come along and exploit animals in this way is really not surprising. It's, it's frustrating that there's another demand on sharks that, that's leading to more shark fishing. It's unfortunately the way the world works these days.
12: Research has shown there is a strong consumer demand for the product because of the health and moisturising benefits it provides to the skin. Klebeck has hoped for the termination of the unethical practice, as recently he was made aware of an alternative oil.
13: What's incredibly important, I know that there has been recent work on developing an alternative, another type of oil that can take the place of shark liver oil. I think that's probably the best path to not over exploit some of these deep water shark species.
12: This type of oil is derived from renewable sugarcane and is 100% plant-based and vegan. Some Australian cosmetic brands use this extraction method, but it's not enough. Most people's interactions with sharks are through media and the movies, where they are more often than not depicted as something to be deeply feared. When we think about sharks, it's important to recognize that our understanding of them might be influenced. Sharks are not out to attack humans, nor are they lurking at our beaches. Rather, they are important parts of our ocean's ecosystem that deserves our concern.
7: As a consumer, I would definitely be turned off the idea of purchasing a skincare product that had whaling in it. And I think it's quite sneaky of these companies putting this product in their skincare when they are aware that a lot of people probably are not aware of the word squalene.
12: As consumers, we must educate ourselves and get involved with organisations like the Humane Society to help stop the shark oil trade and squalene fisheries that are too often left unregulated. This has been Alexandra Marcocci for RMIT Undercover.
0: This has been episode nine of Undercover. Produced by Chloe Henry, with assistance from Zach Wheeler. Reporting by Olivia Thompson, Rebecca Broadhead, Raim Alisari, Alexandra Marcocci, and myself, Tom Monaghan. Special thanks to Tito Ambio and RMIT University.